This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. The first ever simultaneous strike at the big three automakers, General Motors or GM, Ford and Stellantis that used to be Chrysler, began on September 14th with 13,000 workers walking out of three assembly plants in Michigan, Ohio, and Missouri, and ended October 30th with tentative agreements with the big Detroit Three, still to be ratified, but it's an historic victory. 50,000 were out on strike using a new tactic, the rolling or stand-up strike, which Sean Fain, the new militant leader of the UAW, said kept companies guessing which other locals would be next and workers on the ready to walk. We spoke to Nelson Lichtenstein in late September, looking at this strike in the context of the history of the UAW and the leading role the UAW or United Auto Workers played in the 1937 sit-down strikes that exemplified the power of the labor movement. Nelson said auto workers have in many ways been the canaries in the coal mine for the U.S. working class writ large. We asked whether he sees the recent hot strikes with overwhelming public support after a lengthy period of labor quiescence as opening a new period of militancy, igniting a newly revitalized labor movement and an energized working class with the UAW again in a leading role. Today, he returns with us after this historic unmitigated victory of the UAW to discuss the transformative nature of this strike when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. The United Auto Workers, or UAW, has tentative agreements with the big three auto companies after six weeks on a historic strike, the first time the UAW ever hit all of the big three at once. As our guest Nelson Lichtenstein wrote in his November 1st Jacobin piece called The UAW Strikers Have Scored a Historic Transformative Victory, He said, with its successful strike, the UAW has broken with decades of concessions, won on pay and workplace democracy, and launched a new labor, national labor leader. There's much more organizing to be done, but this is an unmitigated victory for the entire working class. The UAW's victory in its 45-day strike against the big three Detroit automakers is historic and transformative. We're using those words a lot. Uh, Ending a 43-year era of concessioning concession bargaining and labor movement defeat that began with Chrysler's near bankruptcy in 1979 and Ronald Reagan's destruction of the Professional Air and Traffic Controllers Organization, or PATCO, two years later. Nelson has been widely interviewed and quoted, and he consistently calls this victory historic and transformative. It's the best news in the world today, and we're fortunate to have Nelson with us to get his take and broader perspective on this victory. So, Nelson, let me just introduce you properly to our audience. Nelson is a research professor at UCSB, that's Santa Barbara, and a labor historian, director of the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy at the UCSB. And he writes about 20th century political economy, the state of the working class, the automotive industry, and Walmart. Among his many books is The Most Dangerous Man in Detroit, Walter Ruther, and The Fate of the American Labor. And his most recent book is A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism, published in 2023 with co- and co-authored with Judah Stein. Today, we're going to get Nelson's view on how the UAW victory, along with victories by Teamsters, writers, and other sectors on strike, might just change that paradigm. Welcome back to the show, Nelson. Glad to be here. Thank you. So I hope I got some of that, right, if not all of it. And as I said, this is really the best news today. It's a pretty ugly period that we're going through in terms of geopolitics. But on the home front, as we like to say, we are seeing an incredible strike season. And now we have this victory of the UAW against the big three auto companies. So maybe we could just start by talking about what is one. And I've laid out like five or six different areas, but let's get your take, and then I'll pick up with what you might miss out or not. Well, yeah, it's been a long time since uh, 
observers of, of American labor participants, activists have been able to just talk about a, a victory that, that seems pretty unambiguous and, and is there. Um, and I think, you know, this is one of them. I'm not used to this. So it's, it's a new thing for me. And yeah. I, I do think, I do think, I mean, it was on multiple fronts. I mean, in, in one sense, the UAW had the wind at its back. There were many favorable conditions, uh, political and economic. But, you know, it's it's always important for any kind of organization, any kind of political, social organization and union to take advantage of the conditions when they're good, and, and you know, to, to strike while the iron is hot and to to do it. And I think that that the, this new leadership of the uh, UAW kind of understood that and, and they and they they did it and they took advantage of everything they could uh, on multiple fronts. And um, let me let me say this, just one thing that strikes me about this, this victory Yes, the wage increase is very good for, you know, regular auto workers, 25% over four years. And then probably more than that, because they, they rewon COLA, cost of living adjustment, mm-hmm. so somewhere in the, in the low 30s. But what's actually even more dramatic is it's radically progressive in terms of the lower wage workers that is those who were temps or those who were in the in the in the in the kind of the second tier that would have been created they they're winning wage increases of, of 100% and more and uh, just yesterday I, I had the privilege of being on a zoom call in southern california with the president of, of UAW local 230 which is the Chrysler uh, with a Solanus uh, parts depot out in Ontario, probably only a couple hundred people work there. Um, and he made this point. So these people had been in kind of second tier. They were getting like $19 an hour. You know, they're out there in the Inland Empire, you know, where everyone's earning about 19 or 20 bucks an hour. And he said, this contract has had a tremendous, fantastic impact on his local kind of recreating a sense of solidarity, bringing a whole new generation of younger workers, you know, into the kind of into activity. I mean, his, his local was on strike for six weeks. They were on the they were actually on the picket line. They they were actually negotiating with the police, like in the old days about, you know, <laughs> where they could pick, etc. And he said he said he'd never seen a, the the uh, contract, which has been so beneficial to his union, to, to the members, not just in terms of of money that's there but he meant in terms of solidarity of act activism of you know making the union a real thing so it was a very impressive to, to hear this guy you know who was the yeah. you know the people there 25 years i mean he described the he said oh the old other times we had a we had a contract we had we'd go back to detroit we'd fight about it some people would yell at us for big sellouts and i guess his job frankly was to sell the contract you know because he was the president of a local and he said this time none of that it was just and, and so I, that was really heartening to hear to hear you know from the grassroots exactly what the meaning of this contract was for well for a couple hundred auto workers in ontario but i'm sure it's for tens of thousands all over the country. Well, let's just go into that just one, you know, a little bit more because a key demand raised over many years and not just in auto, but in other sectors as well, was to get rid of a tiered workforce. And so you just talked about the tremendous gain there, but also the abuse of temporary workers. And I think that came about after 2008, nine. And so can you talk a little bit about what was one there? And then, you know, and then I want to go into like the signal importance of cola i mean yeah i mean the you know the the, actually the 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 companies had had multiple different categories of workers actually turns out it's not just temps and second tier there there are all sorts of categories i mean they the parts people had one thing and then the janitors at another and the union i mean union it didn't didn't eliminate all of that but i mean it did make like in in temps they really got rid of the temps completely i think within nine months no one will be a temp and general motors had a lot of them uh and Solanas had some as well, so they, they got they got rid of that. that, and that means for those workers, just dramatic wage increases uh, right away. And like they're going to tell their friends. I mean, this is going to have a huge impact on you know the meaning of what unionism is. So that so that's one thing. These temps, which are you know they had very you know they had virtually no uh, sen- they had no seniority, they had, they had no benefits. The second tier, it was often well, you're on the second tier. It'll take you like eight years or, or just a huge amount of time to 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 get to the top of 
your wage scale. And then even then it won't be the, as much as regular workers will. So they've, they've condensed the, the number of years it takes to get to the very top from eight to four, even in, you know, for just new hires. And they've also, uh, you know, a pathway to the elimination of the tiers. So I should say that that, you know, we, we often talk and we hear, oh, Bernie, you know, does this, but, you know, all sorts of people on the, on the left. Oh, the billionaire class. And, you know, and we denounce that. And Fain, uh, Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, is very good at doing that. Uh, you know, and, and you know, and that's, uh, you know, ever since Occupy, you know, Wall Street and the 1%. The, so, however, an ordinary worker never meets the CEO of his company. Right. You, know, you never you never meet the billionaires, actually. What you do meet every day for, you know, several hours a day is the person who works next to you on the line or behind in a desk or, you know, behind the counter or wherever. And if they're earning two bucks an hour more than you are or two bucks less. It creates enormous division, disquiet, and and resentment, and and this is going to be you know eliminated. And by the way, this uh, president of Local Two Thirty, Ramirez, who was talking about this, he he, un, he he just pointed this out without any prompting. Yes, we get rid of this this thing which divides us, and it you know it just helps create solidarity. So I think that's why that's you know equal pay for equal work. It's not just yeah. between you know men and women. It's you know among everybody. And I think that's uh, that is has a huge impact and and cannot be understated. And I think sometimes the left ignores that when we when we focus on I mean properly we should focus on the billionaires and, and you know etc. But but we you know that's this I think is more visceral as it were, you know? Yeah and I think that also it's it shows the distance. Sometimes you make a distance of let's say ordinary left wing people or supporters of Bernie from what's actually going on in the workplace. Yeah. And here, you know, I'm really glad that you raised that point. But also, you know, my whole life, this thing COLA existed, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. COLA was cost of living increase. And I used to say when I was in grad school in Britain that this was something that British workers hadn't won, that American workers had. But yeah. it also, we thought at the time, kind of led to a certain passivity in the working mm-hmm. class because they just accepted that they were always going to get a wage increase and yeah. didn't need to push further. Yeah. But then it was taken away. So yeah. I'd like you to talk about the significance of COLA. And how it was lost, and what this means—that it's that it's. Let me put this in in a a, just somewhat larger in class context. In the 1940s and late 30s, 40s, inflation would be was a problem. Uh, And during the war, World War II, when the union really grew, UAW grew very rapidly. uh, There were wage wage controls and price controls. At the end of the war. The uh, and this is where Walter Ruther really cut his teeth, uh, leading the General Motors strike. He wanted wage increases without price increases, and that was true for steel and, and other basic industries. They wanted you know keep the keep the lid on prices because the U.S. government you know produce help invest and and really created about. 40% of all the productive capital in America had been produced during World War II. So this was a sort of social uh, investment. And, and, you know, and as a result, we wanted to have, yes, a real increase in the real wages of, of, of the working class. And, and you would do that by keeping a lid on prices because, because the auto and steel it was much more productive after the war than before because of this new investment. So Ruther was in favor of, of that. And that was the, the hallmark of the General Motors strike of 1946. Wage increases, no price increases. That would that would shift real, you know, real money and real you know power from capital to labor. It was in 1948 that General Motors came to the UAW and said, "We will give you cola. We will give you cola. We want you to take cola. Cost of living, <laughs> meaning auto workers would be protected." Ruther and the other radicals around him said, "No, we reject that." We don't want this for just for auto workers. We want for the entire working class. We still want, you know, we think that prices are a social, political, uh, you, you know, marker, and we want uh, weight, price controls. You know, now Ruther lost that battle. I mean, it was this was the period McCarthyism was growing and uh, against the, you know, etc. And by 1950 and subsequently, 
cola was there and you know and you're right workers said yeah we like the fact that we're protected against inflation even if it's only the auto workers and not not say right. textile workers in the south or not say other you know other lesser or non non uh, organized people but the auto workers got it and then and then you know through that the 50s and 60s all the other big industries got it and 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 even non-union companies that wanted to keep the union out they in effect gave cola well it was a protection, and, you're, and I think there was a degree in which sort of automatic wage increases did take place, at least. But uh, right in the bad times, first beginning in I think the early '80s, and then even more so in 9, 2008 and nine, cola was eliminated, and as a result, we had a you know, given inflation is always there, we had a, basically a twenty percent decline in the real wages of auto mm-hmm. workers and many others, beginning from from the year two thousand until 2020. So COLA was, you know, was important to fight for because, you know, it it established, even if it's not for the entire working class, it establishes a kind of benchmark. And one of the remarkable things I found about the the UC strike of, of, of graduate students last year, that the most militant of them we're demanding cola. I mean, cola was something that came out of the 1950s. I mean, this was <laughs> one of those traditional of all union demands. But the most radical grand students were saying, we, we, don't, we, we won't settle without cola. And I, so I think cola takes on, it's more than just uh, more money in the pay packet. It has a symbolic political meaning, I think, today. And I think that, and the, and the fact that the UAW got it back, you know, they can take that. Well, I'll, I'll talk about this. They can take that to other places and say, here's what a real union contract is. Come join us, you know, if you don't have it already. I think that we'll talk about the uh, the organizing strategy of the union yeah. in a minute. I want to do that in a minute, but let's just give that just a, a couple more things on what was won, because this yeah. is really terrific, Nelson. Yeah. And, and the next thing is that while this strike was going on and everybody expected the the big three to fight back hard, you know, the automakers. And at one point, it just sort of seemed like they saw the writing on the wall. I, or at least that that's my interpretation of it, because so many strikes were on and, and the wind was with the working class. And so what you've got, surprisingly, at least to me, and I want to hear about from you, is that EV workers, uh, electric vehicle workers in non-union plants were included in the contract, effectively unionizing them when in fact, and that's not all of them, but enough of them. In fact, you know, this was going to be the sort of strategy in the transition from the combustible engine cars to the electric vehicle cars that, okay, well, those aren't going to be unionized and we're going to get that on the cheap and compete with China. So how do you see that? And along with that, I guess, that showing working class power or the UAW power, the UAW also seemed to encroach on um, corporate investment strategies or prerogatives because they demanded that union members be protected by being under the union contract in the in the EVs, but they even got Stellantis to reopen a plant in Belvedere, Illinois, that it closed last year. Was that a first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, actually, I think it was a first. I'll get, I'll, and let me say the thing about the yes. The initially the the big three plan was we're going to have these ba- these battery plants will be created. Yes, and with of course enormous subsidies and of loans and grants from the U.S. government. I mean, they, I mean, don't let's not forget that that like World War II, when the government is providing the money and the, and the funds to build the to build all this. I mean, that means that all this new investment has a social political character to it. Let's let's not forget. Yeah. That so, uh, and, but the initial plan of the of the auto companies and of the other other non union auto companies was to have the battery plants would be joint ventures between Korean and American f- firms, or sometimes even Chinese and American. And therefore, the, the General Motors and Ford had a they haven't been built, and b they're going to be joint ventures, so they aren't we aren't even running them, you know. And that was their line at first. And clearly, I think uh, that the the UAW saw that as a death sentence. I mean, if they're if they're going to be these non-union, low-wage battery plants, you know, and Elon Musk is pioneering in that. Uh, this was going to be a death sentence to the union. And I think one, and I think I think that in the in the um, Inflation Reduction Act, Joe Biden and the, and the Biden administration did not get ironclad, you know, kind of criteria which would make it clear that any of these companies accepting the money would have to have union. Unionized the battery plants and 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 at high wages, he didn't quite get that. But 
it's clear that that was one of the one of the things the union wanted. And um, General Motors did cave at that first. They said they were the first ones. They said, well, under the new uh, under the UAW master contract, these battery plants will be will be covered. And then Ford Ford said, if you know, they'll be covered, but you have to win an NLRB election first. But but I don't think the UAW didn't think that was that would be difficult with Ford. And I believe the same is with Scalantis. So so they have gotten that foot in the door to have these battery plants both unionized and then under the master contract. I'm sure there'll be negotiations on whether or not. The wages paid at the battery plants are the same as that in the assembly plants, but that, but nevertheless, there'll be negotiations on that, and it will be under the, they will be unionized. So that was important, and you know uh, that was that was important. But then the thing you raised about Belvedere is even more, is potentially even more important because I, I looked into this, and as far as I know, while union leaders of the UAW from Walter Ruther and Douglas Fraser and, and uh, on to the pre- have, have have talked and, and, and agitated for industrial policy, for the social political control of investments. You know, that's one thing they've, they've done mm-hmm. that. They've taken the lead on that, in, you know, many cases. They've never won it. They never won it. And when when and typically when a plant would shut down and there been and there been scores of them shut down, what they the UAW did win was the right of workers in a shutdown plant to transfer to another plant. Well, okay, that's better than nothing, but that could wreak havoc with a family, et cetera. Well, in this case at Belvedere, Solantis closed this plant in February. The UAW thought this was done specifically as a kind of warning and, you know, and a shot across the bow. And then they, you know, in the negotiations, and I, I wasn't there, I would like to know exactly how that happened. They won a guarantee from Stellantis. They would reopen that plant with, I believe, producing some kind of pickup truck. Uh, and in addition, Scalantis would put a battery plant in that same town of Belvedere. So that is new. And it, and I think it's a statement that investment policy of these big three are subject to negotiations and, and, are, and as a, a social political area of contestation. And that is new and that's remarkable. And of course, it fits in with the, the larger, you know, Biden industrial policy, you know, program. I mean, it, but and that, that I think is what was happening in the strike. It was a kind of dialectical, reciprocal relationship between the union and the government policy and one strengthening the other, and, you know, and I, you know, not perfectly, and, and, you know, but nevertheless, I think that's what happened. So I think that is very important. And I think that this is going to have a big impact uh, on the other battery plants, even built by the non-union uh, companies. I think they can't just willy-nilly uh, get away with doing whatever they want. They, they, they can see this is this is now subject to, to political guidance. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I think it could be a game changer. But l- the only other area that I wanted to discuss in terms of what was won and not, and then before we get on to the yeah. next thing I really want to get into is the the organizing, what's happened in the union, the role of Sean Fain. But just let's go back to uh, pensions. What yeah. is your take on um, first the Detroit Big Three's intransigence, or their you yeah. know about not dealing with post-retirement yeah. health care or pensions? And you're the perfect person to talk about this, even though I know you could talk for an hour. We don't have it. But raising retiree pensions was a long-term important UAW demand. And do you think that it was necessary for them, for the UAW and other unions to push much harder, perhaps on, let's say, Medicare for All or Medicaid for All and a rise in Social Security? Or do you think that this is the union's role? Well, I think, as I understand it, and I'm not, this I'm not totally familiar with, but this was one area that the union didn't win as much as it wanted. And in fact, you do kind of have two tiers in terms of the pensions. That is, some some of the UA, older UAW workers, or auto workers, just have defined benefit te- uh, pensions, which were the, the kind of the gold standard, uh, which yeah. they which was, you know, the union won way back in the 50s and 60s. Then, as a result of this financial, you know, difficulties of 2008, a lot of workers put on a 401ks, you know, with the kind of, you know, which is defined in not defined investment or defined contribution, not not what you're getting out of it. Now, the union did win 
uh, for, get the, the companies to uh, contribute more to these 401k things uh and and you know that, which would you know uh, you know in terms of every day you know every hour of work you contribute more uh and i think they improve the the pensions for the for those who have had the defined benefit ones as well but but i remember hearing one of the union officers saying well we didn't win we still have these essentially two tiers when it comes to pensions and that's that's a bad thing and we have to you know uh, we, we have to fight on that in you know in the future in general in general this contract did not have any concessions typically what are the things that that would you know a unionist or our old unions say you know you can win anything from the companies but you can't win everything so if you win yeah. this you know the takeaway is here well in this case there were there were no very few takeaways and the pensions were improved they just didn't didn't win you know everything that they wanted so um i, I mean historically the Clearly, a lot. Of, I'm not the only one to say this. Lots of people say this. The decision of American unions and and to have their own pension and their own health insurance, which all began in the late 40s and early 50s, was clearly a strategic mistake because it, you know, it it robbed the the argument for and the movement for better social security, national health insurance, etc. It robbed it of of kind of the, some of the most powerful institutions that be pushing for that because they got for the, got it for themselves. So and then still, you know, these unions would have to negotiate over their own health insurance. It's a big distraction. And, you know, they, they therefore they can't negotiate what is most important, which is like working conditions on the shop floor right. or straight wages. I mean, health insurance should be a, a product of governmental, you know, act, you know, regulation, not not something that you have to have five experts from the union side to figure out with, you know, where it's going. That's a big problem. But anyway, um, uh, aside from that, the, the most most people in the in the union take it as a big victory and and probably it will be um ratified by large majorities you know but uh, although i don't know that i haven't heard i think ford uh, i'm not sure but I, I i maybe ford did ratify i'm not sure yeah so but but i think you're right actually just in talking about health and pension on this because yeah. you know in many ways as you said it was it became part of the union's duty because the government failed the state yeah, failed right, right. Yeah. and then of course they couldn't have seen it in when this was won in the late 40s, uh, the way that it would be used uh, to yeah. attack workers during the struggle to get the Affordable Care Act. Right. right and saying, oh, unions have these where they Cadillac gold plated yeah, right. plans, but, you know, creating what we would have called, I guess, an aristocracy of labor because of the union. But it, yeah. But anyway, you're right. This is this is an important part, but not the key part. And uh, but it's not a concession. It's just not a. You know, I guess. Yeah, yeah it wasn't, Uber a, wasn't victory. Yeah, I mean, they, they couldn't have done it. I mean, the key thing on this one was the the investment policy and the and the tra- green transition, and that was where, where they had their. And then, I mean, by the way, the big wage increase they they they, all, they always saw that not just as a big wage increase, which it was, making up for the loss of income in the past, but it's a it's a it's a uh, an advertise. It's a sort of saying. We won a lot and, and you can too, you know, and again, they can use that politically and socially as a way, well, to affect, to affect other, other companies and, and, and unionize other companies. Okay, so let's now go into sort of how this happened. One is, of course, the victory of Sean Fain as president of the union. And that, um, I think you have written, but let's just say it here, is that in the first place, this was about the defeat of the misrule of the administrative yeah. caucus within the union or the administration caucus, rather. So Sean Fain came to power by defeating the administration caucus, that which I guess we could call the old order uh, that had ruled over the UAW and, of course, presided over all those concessionary contracts. But what maybe you could go into for our listeners just a little bit about what was defeated there, who they were, and mm. what was the nature of, of you know, of the um, old order under their administration? Yeah. Well, I mean, so, you know, Walter, one of the, maybe one of the bad things about this strike is that Walter Reuther is being venerated <laughs> as a kind of the, the be-all and end-all of a great union leader. And he was very good. He had many good things, but he was the founder of the the Reuther Caucus and in, in a very intense uh, factional uh, political fight with, with all sorts of opponents. But, and then the Reuther Caucus became the administration caucus. And really yeah. it was the 
machine, a machine for the perpetuation of one party rule inside the UAW. And this had this had very bad effects because it, it created a whole layers and layers of of workers and union leaders and and and, and international representatives who basically were, were loyal to this this caucus and and would carry out its bidding. And, and it, it created a very undemocratic and and claustrophobic, you know, f- flavor inside the union. Uh, and, you know, and this was a product of the of the Ruther uh, leadership. I mean, I can't say that it's that there are other there are some other unions which are much more democratic, but uh, most big unions do end up being a kind of an oligarchy in a way. Mm-hmm. Now, that uh, machine, uh, you know, uh, became increasingly uh, st- solid and then corrupt. Uh, and the corruption, though, the corruption arose uh, in the 1980s and 90s, I mean, straight old-fashioned corruption, which the UAW had not been um, typical of the UAW, even even with the machine that was running it. But it, what was happening in the 80s and 90s uh, was that an argument, a, an ideology of labor management cooperation uh, became part of the way in which the union saw how it was going to preserve itself you know, against, well, international competition and against uh, political uh, opposition, et cetera, by the conservatives, Reagan and whatnot, that there'll be this sort of cooperation with the, with the companies. And and this would be done. They, they set up a joint training operations uh, where, you know, people would be assigned, you know, a, kind of a cushy job there. And it just, it bred the conditions for corruption, you know, for yeah. just straight taking money. But worse than that, really, just worse than, than the cigars and the whatever the golf clubs that they bought with this slush fund was was the court of the 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 demobilization uh, of the union the the erosion of the of the union idea as as a representative of a, of a combative working class against the capitalists so uh finally you know uh, uh in i think 2016 or something some, several leaders of the UAW were indicted on straight out corruption uh, you know and and i think as many as a dozen were, ended up in jail for a, for a while and this is really discre- helped discredit the administration caucus and in the meantime there had been efforts to democratize the UAW for decades there had been movements uh uh, you know, uh Jerry Tucker led yeah. one in- in Missouri, and there had been uh, other United no- uh, National Caucus even earlier than that, and 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 partly, you know, I have to say, I here I, I think the influence of Labor Notes, which was a group of, it's been in existence for forty three years, yeah. a group of of radicals came out of the student movement in the sixties and seventies, and they moved to the working class and put out this publication, which you know, month after month gave information and and guidance to to dissidents in the union in the big unions, and they, I think they're, they're their influence uh, should not be underestimated. And as a result, uh, just a few years ago, the United All Workers for Democracy came to the fore, a group uh, which wanted to have an election uh, of the new le- of the leadership of the union in terms of one person, one vote. That is a referendum, uh, you know, of the whole membership. Not it would not be like your delegates. You'd elect delegates who'd go to a convention, and then you know they would select the the leadership. Um, and it, you, this would open it up. And so as a result of the corruption, what was it, I guess, the attorney, what was the district attorney or the or a monitor who was created said, we're going to have a, a referendum on whether you want to elect all the officers by a uh, union wide vote. And that referendum took place and it passed. And then the United All Work All Workers for Democracy began to sort of have auditions, you know, for uh, you know who would be their, uh, their the slate that they would put forward. And Sean Fain had not been; uh, he was an oppositionist. Uh, he opposed concessions, but he was not one of the founders of United All Workers for Democracy. But he went to them, and 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 they. They chose him and said, okay, all right. They weren't quite sure at first. And they chose several other people too. And they ran and and uh, ran very well and got themselves a majority of the executive board, became these new reformers. Uh, and Fain um, uh, only won by about 500 uh, votes, but he did win. And you can make the argument that all those grad students who are now in the UAW, that they were the, the deciding uh, uh, margin of his victory. Anyway, he became a leader. And I began to hear him give talks back in January and maybe December. And I did not find him that good, but he mm-hmm. got better and better and better. And I think he's just 
moved into this position in a dramatic and successful way. And I think uh, I, I've said, I think he's got, he's got, he, he channels Walter Ruther's argument that we're fighting for the whole working class. He channels Bernie Sanders, you know, that yeah. we disdain yeah. the rich and the billionaire class. And then he's very skillful. at I think using a kind of social gospel kind of rhetoric and he knows his Bible. He's very good at that. He can use that. That's, you know, and he, he's able to do that. And there's even a, a kind of tinge of Trumpism, but, in, but <laughs> deployed in a very progressive way. That's like one of his speeches. I, I saw, he said, he said, well, you know, these, these guys who run the, uh, and women who run these corporations, you know, making 30 billion bucks a year, they wouldn't have you over for dinner. You know, they, they never let you on their, their jet. They, they never invite you to a golf course. They're contemptuous of you, you know, and we return the contempt, you know, we, re- and I thought that was, you know, you know, that, I mean, if, if Trump has some fizan, you know, support, that's, he gets it from that, you know, and, and, and here, Fane was taking that and using it in a completely progressive way. So I think he's, he's amazed. He's, am- I think he has emerged as a national figure. And I just, the other day, he spoke at a, a meeting of the t- uh, Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which is, again, another 40-year-old oppositional yeah. group in the Teamsters. And he was speaking there. You know, there has been a kind of, I think in this moment, the left in the unions, which has been there for years and, you know, usually in a minority, I think we have a kind of popular front, <laughs> you know, which is sort of <laughs> been created here uh, in this moment, you know, and I think uh, that, that augurs well. But it's really interesting that you said that it was, you know, these the 46,000 university, you know, workers and grad students who went on strike only a year ago, yeah. you know, that helped push uh, uh, yeah. Fane's victory. And I remember at the time and even now when this strike, you know, began, I spoke to one of the organizers of the of the academic workers strike in Santa Cruz. And she was in Missouri. I may have said this before on air. I don't know. But she was in Missouri at the beginning of this strike and went out on the picket line and, you know, talked about her local and uh, workers in Missouri came up and said, well, what do you guys make? You know, we never heard about this San Francisco 2865. And then she said, no, we're academic workers. And most of the people in my union think that the A in UAW stands for academic. Yeah, you know, yeah. and now it looks like this strike puts the auto back in the yeah. in the UAW, and I think it's really important that you said that there's this whole new militancy that, who knows how uh, lucky the UAW was to have, uh, you know, unionized <laughs> these people or to have them, you know, this struggle in the UAW, but also, you know, talking about Sean Fain's particular rise and, uh, you know, becoming the man of the moment in a way. Um, I think you said that, you know, in this discussion in your Jacobin piece about, you know, how the talk about inequality is all good and well, but most workers are more concerned about the inequity in their pay compared to other workers. And that Fain's slogan of no corruption, no concessions, no tears was really important. And I wanted to ask you about that, but also about how important you thought his weekly updates with the media and the UAW uh, yeah, members yeah. were because it breaks the tradition yeah. of keeping yeah. silent on the state of negotiations. No, absolutely. He had the weekly or even more frequently updates. He would say, you know, which companies have offered what, uh, <laughs> you know, he structured the, the, the strike, you know, we, we, a new plant will be shut down every week. And he sort of let it be known. We're going to make a decision, uh, you know, 11 o'clock on Friday, which plant did. And then at 1030, they'd get a, a, you know, a new, proposal from the company you know and he would and then a couple times he said okay we're not going to shut down the plant we're just you know good good for you so yes i think typically the negotiations you know had been you know closed horse trading i guess taking place and and they said we'll we'll let you know we'll let you know but but here fane was was you know putting it forward putting it out there and and letting letting everyone know i mean it was a dangerous thing i mean you know it wasn't sure that he was going to win you know i mean it was it was uh, it was certainly putting him you know and out there and uh that that generated a huge amount of confidence and Fane. I mean, here's one thing: Fane, you know, won by a narrow minority, and there was a good deal last spring. There was a lot of discussion about, oh, there's a lot of people still in the union don't like him. They're going to sabotage his work, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The, the the head of the Ford department, by the way, was was an opponent of him, and and but Fane in this strike, I think, unquestionably has unified the union and the all the opponents, you know, who who were there, you know, he he made a point of 
appearing on on these YouTubes with people, some of whom were his opponents, but they were now you know linked together. And I think it made it very clear that that the the, the union is is unquestionably unified and in a good way, not in some bureaucratic way, but in a very good way. Nothing speaks you know <laughs> better for the <laughs> longevity of a union leader than a victorious strike. So I think Fane would not have trouble getting reelected next time. But, you know, I think in the last time that we spoke on air, we talked about the significance of this tactic of the stand-up strike, which, you know, at that point, you we we were talking about how analogous it was to the role of the sit-down strike in the 1930s, which you said at that time was also not just new, but 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 sort of targeted the way this one was. It wasn't like generalized. And yeah. but it really worked. And I was a little skeptical yeah. because I thought it meant, you know, labor peace in too many parts that you yeah. know would not sufficiently. Yeah, right. It is true. Some people didn't go on strike at all. Actually, about yeah. two thirds of the union. Didn't. And and what, what are they thinking? I mean, some of them wanted to go on strike, I bet. But, you know, they I mean, it's possible that that opposition to the to the settlement could come from those who didn't go on strike. Hey, you know, we, we want even more when we're willing to go on strike. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen or not. But I mean, I do think in the end. In the very end, it did have a pattern bargaining flavor. That is, you know, you get an agreement with one company and then that takes. So Ford first agreed to like 25%. And when the others were asking, giving 23, well, then pretty quickly, Stellantis and GM went for 25. So it, in the end, it did have that same dynamic where, you know, the one company goes first and then the other two match it. But I think that uh, it it clearly was also, I mean, it clearly had practical reasons for having this, this putting, you know, certain plants going out, you know, it preserved the strike fund. And they, they, and they did choose which plants to strike, not the ones that would shut down the entire company, but those which were making the most money, you know, out of some SUV yeah. or some pickup truck. So, um, yeah, I think the tactics were actually less important than the general sense of our time has come. They owe us to this. Yeah. The government's at least partly on our side and, you know, and a wave of militancy. I think the tactics were, were not, you know, not like, you know, something that other unions should emulate and definitely win. I mean, I think, I think, you know what I mean? That's what I think. That's yeah, I do. And I think that's really an important point too, because, because you just said, look at the season. We're coming out of like the yeah. writer's strike, the Teamsters yeah, right. contract. And I do want to talk about that, but, but just before that, in your article, you uh, talk about this as a political strike. Yeah. And, and we were all amazed to see President Biden, you yeah. know, side with the strikers and actually yeah. go on a picket line. The very first, I think, for a sitting president. Yeah. Maybe you could just talk a little bit to our listeners about what makes this a political strike? Well, I mean, is it a strike I mean, for power? Has, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have this this moment of, I mean, if you think of what is Biden's most important domestic thing that he's gotten is a industrial policy uh, that will both create chips, silicon chips, and second, uh, the green transition. It's not quite the Green New Deal, but it's a green transition. Uh, and the government will provide many billions of dollars to uh, push the production of electric vehicles and subsidizing, uh, you know, uh, companies and giving them loans. Now, the Republicans, uh, for both partisan and more general political reasons, say this is going to fail. Look, and 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 the argument will be, and 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 the working class people, you you shouldn't go along with this because if this green transition does take place, the new jobs will be lousy. You know, and they'll be low paid. And besides, they won't even exist after a while because the the Chinese will, uh, you know, export all their all their other stuff. And so, so in a way, despite some, oh, I don't know, pseudo uh, uh, solidarity by a few Republicans, you know, visiting a few pick, picket lines, they they basically uh, had a stake in the in the strike failing. You know, failing because uh, failing would mean you'd, you'd have lousy, <laughs> lousy jobs and battery plants. And your workers would say, well, the Biden's wrong. You know, let's not go along with this. And and, you know, and et cetera. So but Biden and the union would say, no, we can make this green transition with with good way, you know, with good wages and, and unionization. And I and Biden understood that showing up on the picket line was I mean, you know, he was saying, yes, I'm linked to the I'm linked to the success of this strike. I'm linked, you know, my my 
whole program is linked to it, and and vice versa. And and in a way, the the UAW's fate is also linked to this this industrial policy program that that Biden has you know is doing. Now it's not perfect and all sorts of problems, but he did that. So that, I think that does make it a fundamentally political and, and it reminiscent of things like the Memphis sanitation strike, which is you know right. about the you know our our municipal workers, many of whom are African American, going to have enjoy high wages. That was what that was part of that, or the the, the strikes that were that that took place right after World War II, you know, when the issue of wage price policy was 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 right there. So, um, yes, it is. And by the way, I would just say this. The UAW, I think, was was absolutely right in not endorsing Biden. They said, we, you have to earn our endorsement. You know, you, we aren't just give it to you. And I think other other unions should should take that point of view. But by next fall, you know, assuming not too many things have changed, mm-hmm. you will have Sean Fain with enormous credibility you know, going to Ohio and Michigan and other industrial states and saying, yeah, you should vote for Biden because that's the way to continue getting good jobs and, you know, and union jobs in the, these new industries that are going to be created. And there is a boom in in heavy industry now in that in area. And so I think, I mean, Shane, Shane is going to have just this, you know, credibility to his to his endorsement, which is invaluable. Now, Again, the other things are happening in this country. Who knows? Yeah, no, I was going to ask you that exactly that because I I can imagine you know that you know as the as we get closer to the reelection, we're going to see the labor movement out there doing the ground you know the ground game and 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 that's really really important, especially because we're not even touching on that. But Michigan's going to be a very key state, and Biden has lost a lot of. Support yeah. because of his position on the, um, you know, on the Israeli Ga- right. Gaza yeah. war. And yeah. we don't know where we're going to be, you know, in a year. But yeah. and there's also, I think, you know, just addressing this this disconnect that Americans, you know, say in poll after poll that the economy is hurting and yet it's, you know, doing better. Yeah. That's another question, because I think yeah. in these last minutes, uh, Nelson Lichtenstein, that we should talk about. You know, what this means for the whole working class, because you talk about this a lot. So what we have right now, you know, we have this huge victory uh, Mm -hmm. for auto and we have the the writer's victory, the UPS contract and other strikes that are still going. But it's all, you know, going well. And I think it's safe to say that the UAW has vindicated the strike as labor's most important weapon. And so, you know, and I I wanted to ask you, because, you know, in the Teamster case, you had the practice pickets and the preparation for the strike, but they won before they went on strike. And yet in this one, we show the importance of the strike. And so I just wanted to get your sort of take or comment on that and whether or not you think that, say, the UAW learned from what the Teamsters went through in this long period, you know, just just your general sort of appreciation of that. Well, I I think this, that that for, for decades, the Anti-union law firms, which have been hired whenever there's an organizing drive, one of them, their arguments they make is, look, you don't want to form a union. If you form a union, you're likely to have a strike. And in fact, the company will make sure there's a strike. They want to, they would want a strike. And strikes are divisive and you'll probably lose it. And, you know, and you just don't want to do it. And so the, so the word union to a lot of non-union workers meant, oh gosh, it means I can be fighting with my, with my next door neighbor, you know, or fighting with my workmate. Oh, yuck. And, you know, I don't want that. So this, this, this successful strike, and I think this is again is true, and also in Hollywood and a few other, you know, says no strikes work. For strikes create, you know, community, <laughs> and 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 they force you know companies to do what they don't want to do, and and you know we can win. So I think that is really really important. And the second thing is clearly what Fain is now on the agenda is we're going to organize the you know as much as we can in the next four years he says when we return to the bargaining table it will not be with the big three but with the big five or the big six and already within like 24 hours of the announcement of the GM uh, settlement Toyota raised wages immediately nine percent nine percent which is close to the 11 percent that the UAW is getting as an immediate raise and in addition, they shrank the time from, uh, you know, to get full the high wage from eight years to four, which is exactly what the UAW won. So already, you know, you're, you're getting, you're getting the other non-union companies mimicking what the UAW did. And I think now it, it will be possible for the first time, you know, in, in decades 
for UAW organizers to go to these other places and say, look, here is what we won. And we did it with, yes, we did it with a strike and we did it collectively and we won it and you should join us. And some of these plants that were on strike were in in Kentucky, like the the Ford, uh, I think it was uh, uh, one of their big pickup truck plants, was in Kentucky, which is right next door to Toyota. So I think they can go there and they can say better than they could say ever before uh, in the uh, the last 40 years, you know, join us. And and of course, that is, is incredibly important because the one reason the Republican political class in the South, they're really the, the most <laughs> militant opponents of unionization, not so much so, at least some management, certainly not the Volkswagen management, but it's right. the political class because they know that a vigorous, dynamic UAW local right in the heart of the of the deep South is going to be a, a center of opposition. Uh, and so, you know, and that augurs well. Uh, and so I think that you, you will see a dramatic and important organizing drives taking place in the next uh, year or two and whatnot. That's really great. And I just love your enthusiasm about this because it's, you know, I'm also very enthusiastic about what this strike means. So the other, the last part, uh, Nelson, because we talked about it in the very beginning, the transformative nature of this strike, and we only have a few minutes left. Mm. Sean Fain declared that the union was striking not just for auto workers, but for the whole working class against the billionaire class. And you say that he wants to take up the UAW's old role um, from the 1930s as the vanguard of the labor movement. So can you, in these last minutes, talk about what that would entail today? And do you mean by that the uh, leadership of the the vanguard of the union movement or of the working class given that uh, labor is still, the organized labor is yeah. still a small percentage. Well, of right. well, that was the phrase Walter Ruther used when he became, uh, uh, won re-election in 1947. We are the vanguard in America. That's what he meant. And he meant that not just in terms of the of the unionized sector or even the working class, but a, a kind of reconstructing an enti- you know, entirely new America. I mean, enormous ambition. And I think ambition is important because it creates vision and creates, uh, you know, it, 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 it it involves people and, 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 and not just in terms of, you know, the improve, yes, improving their lives is important, but a kind of vision and the, and, and the Democrats have needed that to counter the right, uh, and a kind of hopeful, hopeful ambition. And I think that, uh, that if, you know, that dynamic, uh, is, is there and you can show that you can win, that's so important. You know, over the last 40 years, the, the sense that struggle, yes, the struggle is valiant, but you lose. Well, okay. We don't need any more of those. We need valiant struggles that win. And yeah. uh, there's no substitute for that. So, you know, I mean, it's not just fame, of course. I think it's, I think the writers and the, and the actors, they, they've shown that as well. And I think that the, uh, uh, you know, the Teamsters in their own way, I mean, true, the, the uh, O'Brien, who was head of the Teamsters, was, was a more regulation trade unionist than Fane <laughs> was. So he, oh, let's settle, you know. I think a lot of us on the, on the left would have liked to have had at least a five-day strike or something of that sort to, to demonstrate the power of, of the working class. And I think that, that Fane has helped do that. So I think that will give enormous uh, energy uh, to uh, non-union workers around the country. And uh, I think already what I've heard reports that, that, that the UAW is getting enormous numbers of, of emails and whatnot from people who say, we want to be organized. And whether, whether this can shift the entire, the entire structure of American politics, you know, is another, is another story. I mean, you know, uh, the union movement needs to grow enormously. One of the things, unfortunately, that we talk about, all these unions we're talking about, Susie, are either 80 to 120 years old, you know? I mean, right. where's right. the brand new union, you know? Uh, the, the Starbucks union has been, has been stymied. They're there, but they've been stymied, et cetera. Yeah. Same with you, yeah, Amazon. So you, we need, we need a breakthrough here. Uh, and I think that the uh, the ingredients are there for that breakthrough, and uh, I'm hopeful that it can happen, you know, shortly, sooner rather than later. Well, just one last thing on that, because not only are the ingredients there, but the public is with the strikers, mm-hmm. and that's that's like crucially important. So. From uh, your mouth to everyone's ears, as we say. Nelson Lichtenstein, thank you so much for giving us your view today on this really important uh, working class strike. And I would uh, caution, uh, tell the listeners to go out and, and buy his new book. We're yet to talk about it, but I want to. And also to see whether or not this, you know, breaks the paradigm that was, you yeah. know, opened up, right. not just with Clinton, but before. And the book is called The Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American capitalism. And that just is out just this year. Nelson, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman. <laughs>